everyone, and welcome to the fifth podcast in our UNSW Canberra series on navigating uncertainty. Uh, today's podcast is on the topic of how we think about the future. And in particular, we're going to look at the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on how we think about and plan for the future threat environment. In tumultuous and unpredictable times like now, uh, we believe that careful, fact-based work in the humanities and social sciences can really help to shed light on many of our current challenges and help us to chart ways forward. And today's podcast is sponsored by the Future Operations Research Group uh, based at UNSW Canberra. I'd like to start before we get into the discussion by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which UNSW Canberra stands. Uh, I'd like to pay my respects to the elders, both past and present, and to extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who might be joining us today on our podcast. Well, my name is Dave Kukulin. Uh, I'm a professor of international and political studies at Haas, the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at UNSW Canberra. I'm joined on this podcast and on our next one for a two-part conversation with Katya Theodorakis, who's currently completing her PhD as one of our scholars uh, doing the higher degree by research program. And in the next episode, we'll get in huge detail into all the fascinating stuff that uh, she's looking at. But on this one, uh, Katya and I are going to be talking a little bit about how we think about the future. And as the Future Operations Research Group, our job is to try to put some rigor uh, and structure on thoughts about the future operating environment in which we may find ourselves. Uh, Katja, do you want to perhaps uh, start off by letting us know a little bit about yourself and um, how you came to this kind of discussion? Sure. Thank you. Very, very excited to be here and have this opportunity to actually um, be able to talk about the future, especially when we're in a time of um, so-called crisis. I mean, not so-called, but it's um, there's been so much focus on the crisis. So this has been a nice opportunity and time out to actually be able to focus on uh, hopefully some um, some some brighter times. Um, so yeah, my name is Katya Theodorakis. Um, I'm a doctoral candidate here. My research focuses on propaganda, um, especially of asymmetric actors and how they try and leverage the information environment by trying to gain the moral high ground. I look at um, terrorists, um, insurgents, um, so-called freedom fighters, and just um, look at how they construct those sorts of realities that they use to to mobilize and, and try and gain legitimacy. Um, um, I wear... <coughs> I wear two hats. I also have a day job where I work for a German think tank, the Konrad Adenauer Foundation, and the regional program here in here in Canberra. Um, and there I work as a senior program coordinator for the foreign and security portfolio. And I also get to look at um, a whole breadth of topics, um, the Indo-Pacific strategic environment, terrorism, counter-terrorism, extremism, cybersecurity, disinformation. So it kind of all ties nicely together. Um, today I'll be speaking more in my capacity as a researcher, um, but I guess a little bit like the you know like the domains they're all interconnected. We can sort of silo them away from each other, and it's often at the intersections that we actually get the really that we get to tease out the really interesting bits. 
Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be fascinated to hear about what you are doing with Cass and, and how you're thinking about the environment. But as we as you know, you're speaking in in your your capacity as a as a PhD scholar uh, on this podcast. Um, so, you know, let's maybe start very generically, Katja, and think about like, you know, how do we imagine the future? And uh, you know, obviously future warfare and future operations and thinking about the future are disciplines that a lot of industries have created over the past 20 or 30 years. Probably the first industry to really get into futures in a big way was oil and gas and the famous futures organizations began in places like Shell Oil, thinking about, okay, what do we do when you know hydrocarbons start to run out and what does that mean for the planet and, oh, by the way, might we be actually contributing to climate change and all those kinds of long-term <laughs> planning issues. Yeah. Um, and, of course, in the military, it's, it's always been slightly different in that unlike um, most other industries, uh, if you could call the military an industry, you don't get to actually do it very often. Um, and you spend years or decades thinking about the next war and then it can be won or lost in the first minutes or days or weeks. And... Uh, it's become a bit of a truism that you generally lose the first battle because you try to fight it the same way as the last battle of the last war. And then you're in a sort of adaptation and evolution challenge to try to catch up with your, your adversary. But um, I think the other thing that's very influential in the military futures world is actually sci-fi movies. You know, think about aliens or starship troopers or many of the other movies that are out there. And you'll see some military futurist somewhere trying to basically create a version of the uh, of what they've seen in Hollywood. And I've always thought, I don't know what you think about this, but I've always thought it's a little bit circular, right? Because where does Hollywood get those ideas from? Usually it's from the military. Um, and the military gets the ideas back from Hollywood and you get this kind of incestuous uh, cycle. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, that's that's a really interesting way to put it. Some sort of feedback feedback loop in itself. Yeah. Um, I guess I I come from it from a different discipline a little bit. My background's um, been in in anthropology and development studies and and sociology. And sort of one of my foundational courses that I took uh, in in my degree was a sociology course that was actually called Imagining the Future, and that was looking into, I guess, our relationship with technology and how that shapes our outlook on the future and how, how a lot of times utopian thinking about imagining a better life and how we can, how we can overcome sort of the ailments of the present by enhancing um, our societies, by enhancing ourselves, that very quickly after the Industrial Revolution also gave way to fears and, and turned into dystopias. And that's a really, really interesting arc to follow. And, and the big takeaway for me from that course was, and credit here to uh, to Dr. Rachel Blue, who who was the lecturer uh, from when I took this course at the ANU many, many years ago. Um, the key takeaway was that as much as we try and look into the future, so often it, it tells us actually more about the present. It tells us about what our anxieties are. And of course, you know, using a sociological lens, it very much has to do with our collective anxieties and our fears, and that's always structured by power relations. So you're getting a lot of um, the, the drivers and forces that you'd usually get that cause conflict, they come out a lot more in sci-fi. Um, 
for example, during the Cold War, there was a, there were a lot of fears about, you know, the communist other invading. And you get really interesting uh, movies like Red Dawn um, and, and things like that. And once you put those lenses on it, it makes you realize that sci-fi might, it might be really interesting to stretch your imagination and, and see where we might be heading in the future. But the constraints of the present are always there. And I think presentism is a really big um there's a danger of a really big blind spot there that we, because we can't really escape. Um, we could make an argument, and it's probably very contentious to make that, I'd say that it's very hard to escape the constraints of the present. Um, and it takes something else to kind of move yeah. forward with, even mm. if you're trying very hard to, to, you know, to circumnavigate those blind spots that you have or, or get rid of biases. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, I... I don't know if you know Stephen Graham. He's a uh, he's an urbanist, uh, urban studies theorist in the UK, um, who uh, wrote a book called The New Military Urbanism about ten years ago, and he makes the point, which I'm sure you've got an opinion on, that one of the reasons why there's a lot of zombie movies now and a lot of um, dystopian sci-fi uh, movies like The Purge and so on is that there's a certain anxiety. Uh, in in urbanism, right, and living in a city where you're, as he describes it, you're subject to these very complex, distantiated systems where you can't control many of the key inputs to your life, and it just creates this underlying uncertainty. Mm. Of course, this is the point that Karl Marx made, you know, <laughs> yeah. 160 years ago about people moving from organic. Uh, urban life, uh, rural life into cities. Uh, yeah. so it's not a and the alienation that comes with it. Yeah. Um, and you know, maybe maybe we maybe we make zombie movies because uh, the real things we're scared about, like pandemics and urban breakdown and all that, are sort of almost too frightening to to actually look at. Absolutely, directly. and and I have to say, I'm 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 not looking forward to slash look really looking forward to seeing what kind of sci-fi this current period uh, will yeah. give rise to, and and you could look at that from from many angles, not just the pandemic, but also the social unrest and and mm. and the racial... I find racism a really interesting angle to look at here. I, I mm. sort of say that maybe Klingons and, you know, all the other um, that we're trying to imagine where we're so afraid that there's this kind of subversion of our pure order and that, you know, we can only imagine that through body snatchers or all sorts of vile creatures mm -hmm. that come, yeah. especially the ones that come from the inside and that come out of your nose through slime and, and all yeah. of those really horrible things. I think that's... We haven't really, um, we haven't really found. It's an abstract way of, I think, coming to terms, or at least attempting to come to terms with those mm. fears. Um, yeah. And it gets interesting, I guess, when we're coming back to conflict and at a larger scale. When, when those get turned into those more utopian projects of actual top-down sort of social engineering technocratic projects, mm. um, they usually end up in 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 a real life dystopia pretty quickly because you yeah. you just end up subverting people to your vision and and technocratic schemes they don't really have the human at the center so i think that's something i'm always very conscious of when yeah. looking at that sort of that interaction of man and machine um also when we're looking at the ethical and parameters around any any discussion that we have about futures and future technology and how we can best prepare for the next conflict yeah you're actually channeling um uh a, a book called the 
the that rise seeing of like state. I don't know yes, if you're familiar with that. Yes, that's the one I was referring to, James F. Scott. Scott. Right, yeah. <laughs> How certain yeah. schemes to to improve the human condition have failed, yeah. Right. And I mean, speaking from your background, I, I'd be interested, you know, his first um, case study in that book talks about German scientific forestry in yeah. the 19th, century, 18th century. And the point that by coming up with a theoretical model that was easy to understand about what a natural forest looked like, over about 100 years, the real forests began to increasingly resemble the model, right? They actually sort of terraformed reality on the basis of uh, what was originally just supposed to be a rough approximation and eventually became the template around which um, the, uh, the, the forests were all planted and constructed. And I would recommend for those who haven't read the book to take a look at that book. It has a series of wonderful examples um, that are really worth looking at. James Scott is a straight-up anarchist. I don't think he'd be upset for me to describe him that way. Uh, and many of his books are just fascinating. One of his best is called The Art of Not Being Governed, uh, and it's about how um, native peoples in Highland Southeast Asia have successfully avoided getting captured by states over time. Um, but let me pick up something that you mentioned earlier, right, and you talked about presentism. Um, and, you know, years ago, about 15 years ago, I was part of the team that did the Australian Army's future warfare concept called complex warfighting. And we came up with a pretty rich description of what we thought the future uh, operating environment was going to be like with a lot of detail about diffusion of lethality uh, and the expansion of the battle space to a global battle space, the role of technology, um, increased um, uh, complexity and so on. And many people have spoken to me since and said, you guys did a great job, you know, coming up with this incredibly compelling vision of, of future war. And I actually say, you know, we didn't actually come up with a, a, we didn't do a good job because what we were supposed to be doing was predicting a future operating environment in about the 2015, 2020 timeframe. And the environment that we predicted did indeed happen, but it happened in about 2010, right? So mm. what we were actually describing was the immediate future. In fact, we were really captured by the present, right? We weren't really doing um, the work we were being paid to do by the army of, of thinking ahead, right, into the future. And if I could just sort of talk briefly about what we're doing here at Forge, what we've tried to do is to tap into some of the recognised techniques that are out there in the futures community because there is an academic community that now specialises in futures. And... Um, we've tried to apply some of those ideas to how we think about specific problems. And the thing that's relevant to James Scott and Stephen Graham and the folks I've been talking about is I think is uh, a technique that we are using now in the Future Operations Research Group, which is known as um, quasi-experimental design or sometimes also known as a natural live experiment. So what we do is we come up with a future projected idea of what the future might be like and we're currently basing our projections in about 2035 and then we say okay if our theory is if our if our vision of the future is correct if that hypothesis turns out to be true what should we see in 2025 and 2030 and you know in the the time steps between now 
and when our future that we're projecting is likely to occur. And that then allows us to come up with a data collection plan and a model where we can actually test the, that whether our prediction is proving to be true but much quicker or absolutely wrong or whether we miss something critical. And so what we're trying to do here is put some structured analysis onto the way that we think about the future. And one of the reasons we're doing that at the university rather than in the military is, of course, we have longevity here. We work on the same issues over a very long period of time, whereas people in the military will rotate in and out um, in a couple of years and the threads can be lost. I know you've done a lot of thinking about the future um, environment in the Asia Pacific. And without wanting you to tell any tales out of school from um, the Conrad Adenauer Institute, maybe just with your own researcher hat on, if you were going to map out a sort of 2035 future, and let's let's locate this in COVID as well as everything else. Um, so that's 15 years from now. Give us a bit of an idea about what you would think about in terms of that future environment and how it might look. Mm. It's nice. I sort of laid traps for myself in the beginning, saying how we're really constrained in in our forecasting by our by our present um, biases. Um, I think the thing that would worry me the most. I think I'll start like this: is I think I would be very very concerned about that sort of myth that I think still drives us. <coughs> excuse me, drives us a little bit about you know how well we work together with machines, the hu- that, that vision of the human and the machine. And I see that coming to the fore more. It's a very old myth um, mm. that I think has been with us since the industrial age or, or um, shortly thereafter, but it came to the fore in the 1940s. Thomas Ridd's book, The Rise of the Machine and, mm-hmm. and the Cybernetics Vision, is th- that's what it's all about. But I, f- I feel like that, and I think Thomas Ridd says in the book, that myth keeps coming back, it shifts and it, and it changes, but we'll, we'll never really get rid of it because it's it's such a compelling vision and I think that's sort of when I look at that sort of environment that's what I would what I would worry about the most in terms of the I I think there will be a discourse of rationality and control that will come to the fore in response to this pandemic because we're human beings we crave it's it's wired into us we crave security we don't do very well when there's insecurity and crisis and uncertainty and mm. I feel like one of the ways at the moment uh, would be to look to technology because it, it makes us feel like that's where we've put all our energy as, as, as the human race. We've put into developing technology. So we feel like the better we can do that and if we have really, really good, you know, this kind of harmony between like organisms and machines, they work the same way and, and, and there'll be this input and output and we'll have some feedback and then we'll, we'll adjust and self-regulate. Um, I can sort of see that coming to the fore now through through COVID-19 and I, I with a bigger focus on um, changing our environments, how we live, how we work, how we travel or not travel, um, I do worry that that aspect and um, whether that be through algorithms and, you know, saying there has it has to be in tandem, there has to be, they'll never be completely autonomous, it has to be really, really good teamwork between humans um, and machines. We can't take the human out of the loop. I do... When I look at that geopolitically, I think that could very easily give rise to ideologies. Um, and if they're in the hands of, um, you know, if we're thinking about a multipolar world um, with more contestation, as as I think the current um, threat casting is, is telling us we'll have, then I wonder how that will play out. 
Yeah. Let's pick that up because I think um, one of the things that's really important in thinking about the future is understanding the difference between straight line projections. You know, if current conditions continue, then after 10, 20 or 50, you know, 30 years, we're going to see the following set of conditions versus um, kind of a multifactorial approach, almost a complex systems approach where we try to integrate multiple variables and we also take account of shocks, right? And, I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic is in the classic um, mold of a shock, right, one that uh, I, I disagree with people who've described it as a black swan. Um, this idea comes from Nassim Nicholas Talib, yep. um, probability theorist, and, of course, his... Um, his definition of a black swan doesn't really fit what we're dealing with here in that everybody expected a pandemic. Everybody expected some version of this. We didn't necessarily expect it now and in the precise form that it took, but nobody could say they were necessarily caught by surprise. But I think what we, and it gets back to your point earlier about assumptions, what we found is that instead of being a single wave phenomenon that's a public health issue, we're actually getting a multi-wave phenomenon where the first wave is public health, the second wave is economic collapse, and then the third wave is sort of internal unrest and instability and increasingly uh, intrastate conflict as governments are looking for somebody to blame and turning their population's attention outward and we're getting conflicts between you know, China and India, um, uh, Turkey and Greece, Venezuela and Colombia, all these nations that are all having their own issues with COVID but are sort of turning their, uh, their attention outward. And, of course, the, the mother of those is, is the US and China, which is really entering a phase of Cold War, which probably would have happened anyway, I guess. I mean, if we were going to do a straight-line projection from conditions a couple of years ago, we would have expected... Uh, a conflict and probably a cold conflict between the US and China at some point. But the emergence of COVID has sort of radically accelerated that process of, um, of tension and basically pitchforked us into a cold war environment. It's almost like it's accelerated the, the processes that we thought were going to happen anyway. What do you think about that multi, multi, multi-wave way of thinking about, um, about COVID? And I'll just say it's, in common with the, the the model that we use here, it's not what we think is going to happen. It's our hypothesis that we want to now go out and test by looking at the operating environment. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Big, big proponent of getting away from any sort of binary because they're inevitably reductionist. So um, just framing it in, in a very restrictive way will, well, I don't think it will, will get us anywhere because we will, you know, life is complex, as he said. It's a, you know, it's a complex system. It's 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 probably a lot more than that. Um, at various levels, it's, it's quite interesting. Sort of looking at war games. Um, I was thinking about this recently. Sort of um, wondering, well, how would you actually how would you actually take all of that into account? Because it because you it, it tends to be to to have a game. You tend to have very sort of linear narratives that drive it, and they're quite predictable. Um, so for me, it would be more interesting what would actually happen during a war game where yeah. all these other narratives come up. That would where the real value would lie for me. And I think in terms of, in terms of um, 
this predictability of this Cold War between the US and China, I don't know if that framing is actually helpful in that regard, because when we're thinking about it as a multi-dimensional phenomenon, I can sort of see from the other side. Um, so looking, for example, um, at the European position in this, I think that framing is hugely unhelpful for European foreign policy, because I think what it's doing, um, and this is, um, this is, um, I'm, I'm putting an analytical hat on here. It's not a political position I'm taking. And for, for us as researchers, the only real question is, is it true, right? Not what's the, yeah. what's the impact politically. Yeah. So what I'm observing, sort of the narratives um, that I'm observing in, in Europe, um, it's almost like it's it's very convenient to put the US and China on this great plane of great power competition. There's almost this moral equivalence, which I found really dangerous. There's been this disillusionment with the US, especially in Germany. It, it started well before Trump. Um, with the NSA scandal um, in in Germany, and and it's sort of it's it's gone on from there, and the transatlantic relationship I think has has been under strain for a while. But now, sort of the rise of China and how the US is countering that in, in quite um, strong terms, that sort of saying, well, we don't really want to be part of that, which is fine. Yeah. But um, it's it's still seeing the world in these in these very dichotomous binary terms and, and Australia sort of gets lumped into that a lot that it's like well you, you're just following suit very simple in a very simplified take on it and I think in terms of threat casting you're almost getting you're, you're falling into old traps where you know we, we thought we'd be beyond orientalism and occidentalism but you could argue as, as some people have done um, in Germany for example um, uh, uh, Didi Tatlov, who's made a really excellent argument um, that there's almost a new form of Orientalism, anti-Orientalism happening, where by no means do we want to fall into this trap of sort of stereotyping the East and, and this rising giant in the East is evil and we're looking to the US going, yeah, but you're just as bad. And it really overlooks a lot of very fundamental issues that could shape um, our geostrategic order. Um, so I, that's sort of where I'm seeing blinkers. Yeah, in fact, um, let's let's unpack that a little bit, and we've only got a few minutes left, so I want to um, I want to save some of this for our next conversation, which we're about to have about propaganda. Um, but you know, I think one of the interesting things um, when we think about the China-U.S. relationship, and I, I just wrote a book where I covered this off in some detail in my China case study, uh, talking about how. One of the things I've noticed as I listen to Chinese strategists and American strategists talk about a possible conflict is that they are all still saying they don't want a conflict, but they are increasingly treating such a conflict as inevitable. And one of the things that I think is happening is that once strategists and planners begin to think of um, a conflict as inevitable, they stop trying to prevent it and they start trying to position themselves to start it under the most favourable possible circumstances. And, of course, speaking of German historians as we were, the, the guy who originally laid this out was Fritz Fischer, you know, the historian who um, wrote a, what was a pretty controversial book in the 1960s about the origins of the, <clears throat> the First World War. And I've always been struck by his analysis where he says that the key issue was that Imperial German general staff didn't want a war, but they decided at some point in the early 1900s that it was inevitable. And even though they didn't want it, they decided to bring it on under the most favourable conditions because they didn't see it as avoidable. And I, I'm concerned that we're seeing that um, from Americans and Chinese strategists. And, of course, it does have impact for, uh, for Australian planners as well. Just getting back to COVID and just to wrap up, um, 
What do you think? I mean, let's let's just spitball here, right? If we were going to write a sci-fi movie in the vein of Starship Troopers or Alien or, you know, one of the others that we've been talking about, and it was founded on the fears and the societal narratives that are swirling around COVID and it sort of looked forward, let's say, 10 years to 2030, what does that movie look like? Is it is it like a quiet place? Is it like um, Prometheus? Like... What's, what's your vision? If you think forward to, you know, 10 years from now and, hey, who knows, we might actually might actually test this one if, if it's compelling enough. What do you think? What, what, if you were to pick a movie that you think the next 10 years is going to look like or maybe write your own, what would it be? Yeah, um, good one. Um, I'm worried that that sort of usual narrative arc of, you know, our hero's journey that underpins a lot of movies will be completely fractured. Um, and um, I think we may end up with a whole with a whole range of little little snippets and vignettes um, in, in a kind of a... That, that reflects, I guess, the fragmentation of, of some meta-narrative. And I know this sounds awfully cliche and it's just a very post, post-modern argument here, but I wonder if that sort of overarching narrative has been ruptured a little bit. So I'm expecting something a little bit out there where we're getting some... I'm talking more genre than content here, but um, I think that's all we have time for, where we're doing something experimental from various perspectives and where we're all very destabilized at the end, where the viewer or the reader, whether it's a film or a novel, will kind of go, so, right. So it's a bit hard to actually see what's true and what's not here um, uh-huh. and how, I'm, how, I, how I can orient myself here because we've... We've just maybe that shared commitment to something that, you know, great nations will go to war over um, that might not be there anymore. And whether that will cause new wars will actually prevent that big war we were just talking about that might be happening. That might be, that might be another question. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. I mean, maybe the future's Black Mirror or um, uh, the Norwegian um, show Occupied or something <laughs> rather than a traditional um, uh, future war movie. Um, well, let's let's hold it there because I want to come back and I want to dive into much more detail into propaganda and narrative and all the things that you're working on in your doctoral dissertation. Um, but listen, thanks for help, you know helping me um, think through some of these issues on futures and the way we think about it. Um, I'd encourage people to go uh, if you're interested and look at the the Future Operations Research Group website on the School of Humanities and Social Sciences uh, at UNSW Canberra, where we lay out all the research themes that we are looking at. We have regular events and publish and hold um, public discussions about key issues. And I'd encourage anyone that's interested to uh, get in touch with us and all the details are there on our website. uh, And please join the conversation. So thanks, Katja, for a fascinating discussion. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the podcast. This was the fifth in uh, UNSW's Navigating Uncertainty podcast. And please do join us for the next one, which is going to be the second part of this conversation when Katja and I are going to explore uh, the topic of navigating the fog of truth and unpacking information warfare. Thank you, Dave, for the thought-provoking questions. And thanks to everyone for listening. Mm-hmm.